Would you pray with me once again and ask God's blessing on his word preached this morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come and do a great work amongst us. You have promised that your word can move mountains. It is like rain that falls down from the sky and produces fruit in desert areas. That it is a sword that does battle. That by its power, new life is given. And so we pray, O God of ages past, O God of creation, we pray, come and exert your power through your word in our lives. We're all very broken and our sin runs so deep. Free us, we pray, that we might walk in the freedom of Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. And when we see uh, evil in the world, we want to answer the why question. It's sort of the natural response. When almost 60 people are gunned down in Las Vegas, we need answers. We long for the answer to the motive question. Why did he do this? We turn a page of numbers into a possible secret note just to answer the why question. We explain, we want to explain motive because I think it makes evil something a little more manageable. If we know why he did it, then we can do something about it the next time around. It's unsettling not to know why when we're faced with any kind of evil because it leaves us so powerless. If you've been sexually abused or physically abused, you want to know why. Oftentimes you'll answer the why question by assuming blame to yourselves to shame yourself wrongly just so you can answer why did this happen I can't I don't know why externally so I'll just take the blame and the shame on myself you must have done something wrong you didn't it's not your fault the presence of real evil in the world is completely unsettling we don't know what to do with it it leaves us feeling powerless. And so as we venture forward into the book of Exodus, we're coming to the plague narratives. Even if you're not a Christian, you're probably familiar with the overall storyline of the book of Exodus. The people of God are in Egypt, slaves there. God brings plagues, sets them free. They go through the Red Sea, end up at Mount Sinai. That's the basic structure. You've seen it in movies. You've You've read about it. You've heard about these plagues. And what we're going to do today is we're going to walk our way through the big kind of overarching picture of what God is doing in these plagues. In chapters 7 through 10, we're, we're going to save the 10th plague for next week because really it's its, its own thing. The 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son, and the narrative is just something that needs to be highlighted. But there's some repeated patterns um, in these first nine plagues that allows us to kind of get a big picture of what God is doing. And, and in these 10 plagues, God is dealing in a quite powerful way through his acts of judgment with the problem of evil. In these 10 plagues and in the Exodus in general, we have, we've sort of dropped down into a, a meta-narrative, a big story of creation, fall, redemption, a story of conflict that began, as we have said, all the way back in Genesis 
chapter 3, when after Satan tempted Adam and Eve into sin and rebellion against God, God cursed the serpent and said to him, there will be conflict between your seed, your descendants, and the seed of promise that will descend from Eve. And in my kingdom and your kingdom are going to be in conflict, and you'll You'll get a little bit of victory here and there, but ultimately I'm going to win the day through my descendants. I will establish a kingdom and bring about the eternal end of evil in this world because this is not a conflict of equals. God always wins. And so here's the theme in these plague narratives in 7 through 10. God brings salvation through judgment. God, the righteous judge of all the earth, is bringing judgment on evil. And as we'll see throughout these plague narratives, there's really two sources of evil in this narrative and in this world. There is evil outside of ourselves, and then there's the evil inside of us. Both are too powerful for us to deal with with our little weak hands. And so God provides deliverance. And we'll see that that deliverance comes through a mediator. Salvation from evil, outside and inside, but through judgment. And so the enemy of evil, the external enemy, is bent, we see, on oppressive control. This is what evil wants to do in the world. The presence of evil, the enemy outside of us, is intent on oppression... Again, we need to remember that Egypt is a manifestation of the kingdom of darkness in the world. That's proven in the way they are treating God's people, the pharaohs. And, and they're just mentioned by their title, Pharaoh, but there's a series of pharaohs in the, in the Exodus narrative. The pharaohs have enslaved God's people and are worshiping false gods. And they've enacted genocide against the male babies of the Israelites. And so the Lord confronts the evil of the Egyptian empire by sending Moses and Aaron because the Lord, as we said, as we heard read from Exodus chapter 7, he repeats titles, my hosts, my people, my children of Israel. I'm going to set the free from the oppression of the evil empire. The evil kingdom will not keep my people oppressed forever. And so there, in this narrative of plagues, there are nine plagues that are broken into three repeating cycles. The first plague, the Nile River is turned to blood. And then in the second plague, frogs emerge from the Nile and infiltrate all of the houses of the Israelite or the Egyptians, even their beds and their bowls. And then they die and they begin to rot. And then in the third plague, dust is turned into swarms of gnats that rush in and oppress Egypt. Fourth plague, flies swarm into Egypt. The fifth plague, all of the Egyptian livestock die. And beginning from the second plague onward, the, the Israelites are spared from the plagues and judgment of God. Only the Egyptians begin to um, experience his power unleashed in judgment. The seventh plague, or sixth plague, boils erupt from the Egyptian bodies. Seventh plague, hail destroys most of the Egyptian crops and what's left in the field and on the trees is then destroyed in the eighth plague by locusts who swarm in and devour the rest of the plants. And so Egypt is less completely destitute of any living thing. 
And then in the ninth plague, utter darkness engulfs Egypt. And then again, Israel is left with a bright and shining sun as the Egyptians are in such complete and utter darkness that they can do nothing more than just sit in place for three days. They can't even see in front of them to get up and move around. So we have to ask this question, why? Why these plagues? Why these ten plagues? God could have just wiped out the Egyptians in one fell swoop. He could have rained down fire like he did and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah completely in one day. Why these ten plagues? Why plagues at all? God saves through judgment. And these plagues are a display of God's holiness and righteousness and power one over all of creation, but they're also his acts of judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. See, the Egyptians were polytheists. That meant they worshipped multiple gods. They entrusted themselves to the care of multiple, and these gods needed to be kept happy in order for life to thrive. Life was a delicate balance of keeping the gods pleased, and so they worshipped the god of the Nile. They believe that life started in the river Nile. All of life grew up out of the river Nile. And so when God brings the first plague as an act of judgment on the false gods that the Egyptians had trusted themselves in, the Nile turns to blood. And the God of the Nile dies under the hand of the Lord of all creation. The Egyptians worshipped a God whose head was a frog. And so the Lord brings frogs out of the Nile and they they heap up in mounds around the Egyptians and they die and they rot and they stink because there is only one Lord of creation and he will judge all the false gods. You've heard of the God of Ra probably if you've been around middle schoolers. You've, you've heard, been taught of the Egyptian God Ra, the God of the sun. And he was worshipped. And they trusted in him to be the God who brings power and life to them. And so in the ninth plague, he goes missing. For three days, they're stuck in utter darkness. And the God of the sun loses his power to bring forth life. These plagues are also... They're also God's judgment on the livelihood of the Egyptians. Egypt was a very affluent country. Their economy revolved around grain and livestock. And when drought hits other parts of the world, the Egyptians were the place where people went to get their grain and their bread. This is how Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place. And so God is bringing judgment on the livelihood that the Egyptians entrusted themselves to. They found their worth, their significance, their glory, and their affluence. And so in the fifth and the seventh, the eighth plagues are God's judgment on the livelihood, the economy of the Egyptians. You see what he's doing? His judgment on the Egyptians was a confrontation of pure evil with his righteous indignation. He is not silent in the face of the evil empire that was oppressing 
His beloved people, His children, His hosts, in His acts of judgment, He is revealing how He feels about the oppression of evil. He confronts it straight on. He pours out His judgment. And again, remember the evil that they were committing. They weren't just not letting them go. Pharaoh was killing little babies. When confronted by God, Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let your people go. Instead, I'm going to make their life worse for them. They had instituted genocide and slavery, and no one could help them. In fact, we're told that life was so bad for them that they had lost all hope because of their oppression. And the moment when they are most hopeless and thinking oppression and evil are the course of their life, God steps in and brings judgment. Again, we'll notice that this is a conflict that's much bigger than just Egypt and Israel and God. This is a, a conflict of kingdoms. And we see in this narrative that behind every evil with a small e is evil with a capital E. See, Pharaoh's magicians are are able to replicate certain miracles. When Aaron throws his staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. And, And so Pharaoh calls his Egyptian magicians in and they throw their staffs down too and In a sign of wonder, they too become snakes. And then the Egyptians, for the first two plagues, are able to replicate the miracles that Moses and Aaron are able to accomplish by their secret art. They turn the water of the Nile into blood. And they make the frogs come up out of the water. How is that possible? Well, Satan is able to perform wonders in this world too. This world is much more enchanted than we think it is. And our modern people like to admit we we like everything to be boxed and easily explainable. But there are powers of evil at work. Satan is able to do much more than we think he can. He can manipulate people. He can cause evil that is pure and destructive. He is in a small f kind of way to be feared but notice this god deals with the power of evil by showing its ultimate powerlessness these are not equal powers the magicians can't keep repeating the plagues at the third plague they stop and say we can't we can't replicate this this is the finger of god when Aaron's staff is turned into a snake, he slithers and swallows up all of the snake staffs of the magicians. For when God bears his arm, evil cannot stand. Because while the evil one has great power in the face of the Lord, it's like a kindergarten bully facing an NFL linebacker. It's no match. So there's another enemy, another enemy that God is bringing his judgment against, another evil that runs through the plague narratives, and it's evidenced in Pharaoh's response to God's judgment. 
starting with the snake sign in chapter 7 all the way through the 10th plague, Pharaoh's heart grows hard. Now, when we say a person has a hard heart, it usually means that they're bent on evil or a lack of tenderness, kindness, and compassion for others. They're unresponsive to any kind of moral reasoning. They are bent towards evil and cannot be reclaimed. They won't listen. And this is admittedly, it's difficult to get our hands around exactly what's going on here. Because first in 7.3, God says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He says it in 4.21 too. This is what I'll do. I'm going to judge Pharaoh and I'm going to harden his heart. And then the text though tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In fact, three times God declares, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And four in chapter 7 and again in chapter 10. And then three times we're told that Pharaoh Harden his own heart. What is going on here? Who is doing what? Who is responsible here? Is God the responsible agent for hardening Pharaoh's heart for the evil that's being manifested in this world? Is Pharaoh ultimately responsible for this? Who has moral responsibility for what's going on here? And some pastors have tried to get themselves out of this hole by simply saying, after Pharaoh hardened his heart, God stepped in and hardened his heart. But that doesn't really line up with the text all that well. It doesn't line up with 4, 7, or even Romans chapter 9. And so how is God's act of judgment on Pharaoh hardening his heart not release Pharaoh from any moral responsibility? Because that's not what the text says either. Pharaoh was morally responsible. He hardened his own heart. Well, I think the answer here is that there is another way, in fact, a more frequent way, that Pharaoh's hard heart is described here. Seven times we're told in this way. Once here in chapter 7 and then repeatedly throughout the narrative, interspersed throughout, we're, we're told this. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. As if there's another party involved here. Pharaoh... His heart is hardened by God. Pharaoh's heart is hardened by himself. And then there's this third air agent that's hardening Pharaoh's heart. It was hardened, but by who or by what? And then we read throughout the pages of Scripture, this is what sin does. Before sin is something we do, it's first a power that is at work within us. Before we commit sin sin works in us as a tendency as a power like the power of gravity has an inclination to pull things downward or the power of inertia has the tendency to push things forward the power of sin has a tendency to push god away in rebellion sin has an allergy to God. And this enemy dwells within every man, woman, and child. All of us. And Paul in Romans 1, he's talking about creation, displaying the power and the goodness of God. Much, much like the power of God being displayed over creation and in judgment in these acts of, of plagues on Pharaoh. And Paul kind of 
draws our attention back to the power and goodness of God being on display throughout all of creation, then he says, then this is what we do with it. This is what sin does with it. It actively suppresses the truth of God. Now, he doesn't call us victims or just simply broken. This is a power that is at work in us, and it has an allergy to God. It doesn't want to bow our knee to our Creator. The picture of suppressing the truth in knowledge, we know because God's left His fingerprints over all of creation, we know all of us, and in order to deny that, sin has to actively suppress that truth. I always think of when I pack, whenever I pack to go on trips, I always pack too much because I'm afraid of leaving stuff behind. And so it's not uncommon for me to have to sit on my suitcase just to get it zipped shut. And this is what sin does to the display of God's power because it is a power with an inclination against God. So think about what's going on here with Pharaoh's heart as God letting Pharaoh go towards his natural inclination of as an act of judgment or or God giving Pharaoh over to what he wants. This is not a conflicted ruler. Pharaoh is bent towards evil and rebellion against God. Think of the heart as a piece of metal. It is naturally inclined to be hard. In order for metal to stay soft and malleable, it needs a constant source of energy outside of itself. Heat needs to be constantly applied to keep it soft. Left to itself, it is inclined towards hardness. That is the natural state of the human heart. Hardened only when God intervenes from the outside will it soften and become living and malleable. And so when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's letting him go. The natural inclination of his heart, when his heart is being hardened, it's being hardened by sin. And when Pharaoh hardens his heart towards the end of the narrative, it is because God has completely given him over to what sin wants to do in his life. Sin hardens Grace softens. You don't want to be given over to this enemy. You don't want God to remove his grace, his softening of our hearts as an act of judgment. And if you find that's what's going on in your heart today, today is the day to beg for mercy. God will deliver you. Again, these 10 plagues, it's an abundance of mercy. Why 10 plagues? Because in all throughout this, God doesn't just completely wipe out the Egyptians at the end of each plague. He's giving them a chance to turn, to turn away from the hardness of their heart, to turn away from the kingdom of darkness and turn towards him. He will receive, he would have received the entire Egyptian nation to himself. He's defeating evil, but his kingdom is open to all. All of Egypt could have come and been brought into his beloved people. See, he's slow to mercy. Why 10 plagues? Because he is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Turn today and he will deliver you from both of these evils. You look outside and you see this enchanted world is a dangerous place because of the presence of evil and you see in your heart an own inclination towards evil, then turn to him. He will deliver. And here's the last thing that we need to see, the, the way he delivers, how God delivers his people. Again, Notice that he could have just transported his people out of slavery into the promised land. You know, like, bam, boom, there he is, right? Egypt, no longer 
completely wiped out. Now Israel is in the promised land. By his word, he spoke creation into existence. Certainly he could have done this. By his word, by simple declaration. But the reason we are in chapters 7 through 10 before we even begin the acts of judgment on Egypt is because God has been raising up Moses in these first six chapters to be a mediator. These really are the first six chapters are God introducing us to the one through whom he will save, who will act as a mediator. Children, a mediator is simply a person that goes in between. So you might have thought sometime, you know, I'm in trouble. I've done something wrong. But my sister is in good with my mom right now. And so instead of me asking to watch TV, I'm going to send my sister to ask on my behalf. Well, your sister, when you do that, you're sending your sister to be a mediator. To stand between you and, and your parent and to receive blessings on behalf of them. And as the mediator, Moses here does two things as he interacts with these two evils, the one outside and the one inside. He speaks and he prays. He speaks to Pharaoh and declares God's judgment on Egypt. And then he prays on behalf of Egypt and the plagues stop. Repeated patterns over and over again. He speaks to Pharaoh and warns him of the coming judgment of the plague. And there's a repeated pattern. In, in plagues 1, 4, and 7, he shows up in the morning and he announces to Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen unless you repent. And then he brings, God brings judgment. In the second plague, again, he warns him in that series. In 2, 5, and 8, he, he again announces, this is what God is going to do, and he does it. And the last plague in those series, God just brings judgment on him without any type of warning. But the pattern is repeated over and over through Moses, the mediator. He's announcing the coming judgment and giving them a chance to repent. God still speaks and these battles still go on. But the war against evil on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus has been won definitively once and for all. Jesus triumphed over the evil one, dethroning him as the ruler of the world. The word made flesh is greater than the evil of this world. And the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the evil one. And he does so by his word. He speaks today as the prophet of God. And in doing so, lives are transformed. When we see someone come to faith in Christ, it's because God, through his son Jesus Christ, and by his word, brought that person into new life. Jesus commanded men and women and little girls, they were delivered from demons by his word. We saw that in Mark chapter 1. He spoke and the evil one was driven out. And they're set back to health and life and flourishing when tempted in the wilderness. Jesus spoke from the word and defeated the evil one. And now his word is a sword and a shield. Both have great power. When the evil one accuses us and reminds us that we are no longer beloved by the Father, accuses us of the remaining sin in our lives, wants to make the power of sin seem much bigger than any of our hands can handle, Jesus, by his word, comes in and speaks. 
And the evil one loses his power. The evil one hurls at us our shame and guilt. Jesus stands up and he prays. This is what also happens at the end of each plague. Pharaoh says, look, I can't take this anymore. Please, Moses, go out and pray. Moses goes out, raises his pants and prays, and the plagues stop. Because he's the mediator. This is the way God works. His plagues stop, and they find relief. And he prays as a priest. He's favored in God's sight, so the righteous judgment of God is diverted because of the intersection of the mediator. So the greater mediator prays for us. Now, the Father hears the pleas of the Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads with him based on his own merit. The Son was sent on a mission by the Father, accomplished our salvation. And Jesus isn't just sitting around. He's reigning in heaven now. He's taken his throne. It's why you no longer see him here, but you will see him. And in, the, in, in between time, this is what he's doing. He's seated on his throne, reigning over all of creation. And he is praying with power for you, if you belong to him. And the Father with joy. I will pour out my blessings on them for you, my son. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, so you can approach the throne of God with confidence. And you'll find grace and mercy to help in your time of need. Why? Because the son, like Moses, has raised his hands and the judgment of God is stopped against you because it was poured out on him. And now with joy, I'm struggling. I find the power of sin in my life is growing. I'm discouraged by the evil that I see in the world. There is one who reigns and prays, and his people are victorious as a result. So he's the author of your faith. He's defeated sin in your life. He's the perfecter of your faith. He will bring you to completion because he's the mediator who stands and prays. And he prays his merit, and he always wins. The mercy of God and the power of God flow like a flood to those who have been freed from the judgment to come by faith and the one that God provided. So be found in him and be confident in him. That kindergarten bully can only bully you around so far. Because your king has stood up and won the battle. Let's pray. Father, we um, we long for the day when there will be no more struggle with the enemy without or the enemy within. Until that day, we look at the cross and see the climactic victory of God, the righteous judge of all the earth who won, dethroned the evil one through his son, and will one day slay the dragon once and for all. He brings the new heavens and new earth. Lord Jesus, you are the only one worthy 
You're the only one worthy of our praise, our honor, and our trust. You are the only one worthy to bring the power and the kingdom. And so to you be glory forever and ever. Amen.